Today's scripture comes from two passages, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, and 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. I'll be reading from the Yezebi. Matthew 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And from 1 John, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you. I'll finish off the reading a little bit later. That's okay. I, uh, I forgot to tell Nathan that we added a couple more verses to the reading. Surprise. <laughs> okay, but we'll get to it. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, every once in a while what happens is I study this passage and I think, okay, this is what I'm going to preach on. And I realize, you know what? I think I need to actually preach a little bit more and continue a little bit more on the study. But I've already submitted my materials to Pastor Lily at that point. So the worship order has gone out and... And I forgot to tell the presider what to read. So anyway, that's my fault. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, uh, good morning to everyone. And uh, we are continuing, as you can see, on the Lord's Prayer. And I'm excited to just really preach on this section on what it means when Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. And so uh, before we do that, uh, I'm going to ask you to just uh, join me in prayer one more time. So let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, uh, we hallow your name, and Lord, we pray, may your kingdom come, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we worship you, God, and we praise you, and we glorify you, because uh, we have been made children of God through the work of Jesus, and so we rest completely on the work of Jesus on our behalf, and we are so thankful that we actually have the joy and amazing privilege of fellowshipping with you to know the living God and as we fellowship with you Lord you're the one who teaches us how to pray uh, you're the one who teaches us how to walk with you and commune with you and I pray that as we look into this prayer now uh, Lord Jesus as you taught your disciples 2,000 years ago would you teach us today would you teach us what it means to have vital fellowship with you uh, would you, would you uh, change our hearts and would you give us hearts that would worship you, uh, hearts that would uh, lean completely on your work. And Lord, I pray that you would minister and speak to your people through your word uh, this morning for your glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, well, a uh, couple years ago, there was a group of us here at the church and 
Uh, we were invited to watch something called the Global Leadership Summit that was uh, put on by Willow Creek Church. And one of the satellite campuses was here at Lake Avenue. And they had a series of different speakers who would come on and just talk about leadership in, in different uh, ways. And I remember one particularly uh, memorable talk uh, given at that time by this man named Marcus Lamon. Has anyone heard of the name Marcus Lamon? Okay, he is, he runs a show, TV show called The Prophet. Anyone ever watch that? Okay, all right, that's okay. All right. Um, just to give you a little background about him, he's this wealthy, wealthy CEO, um, several hundred million dollars in assets, and he is a CEO of, of Camping World. Some of you are into camping, so you might be familiar with that. And as I mentioned, he runs this uh, reality TV show called The Profit, where he basically goes into these small businesses and he helps struggling business, he helps identify what the, the systemic or underlying issues are that's making them unprofitable as a business. And he helps them to reach their goals. Um, he's got all the money he ever needs and wants. So he's not doing this show because he needs more money. As a matter of fact, he himself at the leadership summit admitted or confessed that he invested $60 million of his own money into this show. And he knows that he's not going to make a dime. Okay, so he's essentially giving away uh, a sizable portion of his assets for the show. And the question is why? The, the interviewer asked him, why would you do this? Why would you give up so much of your time and energy and money? And his answer was really interesting. He said that for him, doing this was a form of soul cleansing. He used that phrase, soul cleansing. Um, I don't know much about his faith and where he's at with God. But apparently... He felt that he needed something to do that went beyond himself to cleanse his own soul and to help make a difference in this world. And I think that Lamont hit on something that's really at the root and the fabric of every single human being. That no matter how much money you may have or no matter how successful you may be in this life, no matter if you attain all the dreams you ever wanted to attain in this world, that none of that, nothing will ever provide what's called, what he would call soul cleansing. The need to have the deep part of who you are pure, holy, clean. And this is what Jesus touches on in this part of the Lord's Prayer. As we've been going on through every phrase and talking about what does it mean when we call upon our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And we've been looking at uh, the first part of the Lord's Prayer and seeing how really it's centered on who God is and worshiping Him, finding our identity as the children of God. And then we get to the second part and we talked about last week what it meant to ask Jesus, give us this day our daily bread. We talked about how this is to lead us into a life of gratitude for all the things that God has given us in our lives. 
uh, a life in which we are looking out for the welfare and the, the well-being of those around us, not just our own needs, and to depend daily upon him. Well, we get to this phrase here where Jesus teaches us, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our debts. And 1 John, this passage that we just looked at, um, 1 John tells us in the first few verses that the greatest joy and that the greatest privilege that you and I can ever have in life is the joy of knowing God, of fellowshipping with God, and being in vital relationship with this living God. This is what John is getting at. And then he goes on, 1 John chapter 1, to talk about then um, what is it that gets in the way of this relationship with God. So in verse 5 to verse 7, John writes this, This is a message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, the greatest danger that John is talking about for all of us, even though we have this great privilege of walking with God, the greatest danger to this fellowship is sin. Is sin. Sin is the most fundamental problem of the human condition. And as believers, the greatest danger of our relationship with God is to walk in sin, to continue in this life of sin. And this is what John is talking about here, that if we claim to, ha- to know God and fellowship with God, but walk in the darkness, we, then, we're, then we lie. We're not practicing what God wants us to practice. God is light. That is John's way of saying that sin breaks our fellowship with God. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, Isaiah says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And we know that God is holy, and we know that God is just, and we know that because God is holy, that sin cannot dwell in the presence of who God is. Now, God loves you and I unconditionally, If he did not love us unconditionally, there would be absolutely no hope for any of us, right? But sin, what it does is it acts like a barrier to experiencing this love. And I like to liken it to if if you've ever flown on an overcast rainy day, Right? And if you, on the ground level, it's raining, you see all the clouds, it's very dark, gloomy, and uh, the weather outside is very formidable. Um, and it, you know, generally in that kind of weather, it just doesn't make, you, make me happy at least, right? But I've noticed that as you take off in the plane and you go, and then finally the plane breaks through, uh, the clouds, and then if you've emerged on the other side of the clouds, and, and you notice that oftentimes it's very bright, and it's so bright that the beams of the sun are reflecting off the clouds right below you. 
and you think, wow, it's such a beautiful day. And you see the sun and you see the, the beams and the glory and all of that. And it feels so different on the other side. How could this be, right? And, um, but it's, just, it's like night and day. Now, did the sun somehow change? Did the sun move in its course or anything like that? Not at all. But your experience of that sun has changed. Why? Just by virtue of the position of being underneath the clouds versus above the clouds. And what sin does is when we live a life of sin is it, it acts as a barrier so that even though God's love has not changed towards you, your experience of that love is clouded. It's like you're beneath those clouds. You can't see God clearly. You can't experience him fully as he wants you to experience him. And that's what it, that's what it does. God is light and there's no darkness in God at all. And there is a difference between our position in Christ versus our personal relationship with Christ, right? Your position, once you become a child of God, once you're in Christ, your position in Christ is completely secure. That will never change. Uh, God's love for us will never change. However, our personal relationship with Christ can vary depending on how we learn to walk with God day by day, right? So think of the, the relationship between the child um, and the mother, a mother to the child, and the mother is always going to love this child no matter what, but that relationship with that mother will change or your relationship with the child will change depending on whether that child listens or not, right? And uh, that's the same way with our relationship with God. John Owen asked this question. He was a uh, Puritan pastor, theologian, but he says, does God then love his people while they are sinning? Yes, he loves his people, but he does not love their sinning, right? So John's point in this passage is this, sin is serious. Why? Because it breaks fellowship with God. It breaks that fellowship with God, and you lose what you most need in your life which is a vital relationship with God, a vital walk with God. That's what you miss out on. So, second thing is, the question is, why is ongoing confession of sin so vital to our relationship with God? Why is ongoing confession of sin so vital? I don't know if you've ever asked this question. Some Christians wonder, if Christ died on the cross for all of our sins, and there's no condemnation in Christ, and Christ took care of our, all our sins, past, present, and future, why do we keep confessing our sins? Why do we over and over, ongoingly, keep confessing sin? Well, the way that we continue to keep fellowship with God is through the confession of sin, ongoingly. That's what John is going to get at as well. The way that we maintain and keep vital relationship is through ongoing repentance. Uh, Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ, but he likens the confession of sin to spiritual breathing, spiritual breathing, right? And so what he would say is confession of sin is like exhaling, right? <sighs> like that, but inhaling is when you receive God's forgiveness, 
First um, John chapter 1, verse 8, John continues to write, for example, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if, if, if we claim, hey, I've got nothing to confess in my life, I'm, I'm pretty good, look at, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm almost sinless or whatever, John is saying, no, you're, you're actually deceiving yourself. That's not true. John tells us that we naturally try to avoid dealing with our sin. And the way that we avoid dealing with sin, a lot of times, is that we deny that it's even there. We can make excuses. We could justify it. We could blame it on other people. We could just say, well, that's just my personality. That's just, you know, I, that's just the way I am, or that's just the way this person is. But those are nothing more than self-defense mechanisms to deflect real responsibility from having to confess real wrongs. And when that happens, it cuts off our intimacy with God, but it cuts off our intimacy with other people as well. And so John repeats again. He says in verse 10, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So again, John says that if we're in denial about sin, we're no longer living in truth. Now, why is John saying this? On the one hand, sin... Walking in sin breaks our fellowship with God. But on the other hand, if we deny that we have sin, that also causes us to lose our vitality with God as well. Well, John understood the reality of what some people call indwelling sin, indwelling sin in a believer's life. In other words, we've been given this new nature in Christ. And in this new nature, we've been given a new power to obey God and to walk with God and to love him and to uh, do what we never thought imaginable before. God literally transforms your nature. You're a new creation in Christ. This is your fundamental new identity. But he also talks about the word of God also recognizes that as long as we're in this world, that there's this struggle that we have, this ongoing struggle with sin. So, for example, Paul, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7, he talks about this reality as well. Now, there's some debate. Is Paul talking about a believer, an unbeliever? Um, if you look at Paul's language, it, it seems as if Paul is speaking of himself as a believer, his delight in the law of God. Um, there's other language. But Paul says, for example, in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, he says, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Um, Romans seven nineteen, Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh. For I, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what keeps me, uh, what I keep on doing. So, Paul is talking about the struggle of sins of omission, sins of commission, the things that I know are wrong. I find myself struggling with that, the things I know that I should be doing, I'm not quite doing. So there's this struggle, this internal struggle that Paul is dealing with. Now, Paul, 
I would say in these verses, he's not making an excuse for sin. That's not what he's talking about. We never use grace as a justification for sin. That's not at all what Paul's talking about. What, Paul was the most mature Christian probably who ever lived. But what he was speaking of was a reality that as long as we're in this world, we will have a fight against the flesh, this, against Satan and the world. Uh, there's this fight that we must always be vigilant about. And then look at verses 22 through 25. Um, and this is, this is Paul's solution. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And this is the solution. He says, wretched man that I am. This is who I am in my, uh, by myself apart from Jesus. There, there's no hope for me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? But look at his conclusion. He, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's solution was not to look more and more at his wretchedness or to look deeper within himself. His solution was to look away from himself onto Jesus. And as he looked on Jesus, Jesus is the one who delivers him from this body of sin and death. This was his solution. So while Christ died for all of our sins, the reality is that we always fall short but the re this must cause us to continually confess and then to repent and turn to Christ, to constantly turn to Jesus. As you mature as a Christian, you will find that uh, sometimes confessing sin becomes harder. Why? Because... Um, the nature of sin you discover becomes more and more subtle. It's not so much the, the big things, right, the big uh, behavioral issues or those kind of things, but what you find are um, that sin is much, much deeper. It's um, the critical spirit. It's the pride. It's the jealousy. It's the oversensitivity to that remark or that person or whatever, the resentments that develop, the self-centeredness. There's a lot of... Um, you know, you find that the layers go much deeper, right? And it's much more subtle. And sin comes in uh, the hidden idols, right? The not so obvious things, but the hidden idols of the heart and the things that we tend to put our trust in more than Christ himself. And so we become anxious or controlling or those kind of things. So sometimes for a maturing Christian, confession of sin is sometimes harder because uh, it's more subtle in the heart and these things tend to get justified very easily. Now, I want to say that others of you struggle on the other side. And for some of you, you don't have a problem seeing your sin. You see your sin like with 20-20 clarity and vision. So for you, um, you're just in this constant state of guilt, in this constant state of, of living in the shame, and, and uh, these things are just racking you down, weighing you down. 
uh, you're, you're, you're buried underneath tremendous guilt and shame, and you can't even move forward in your relationship with God because of these things. You know your shortcomings well, and you feel like, I can't even look God in the eye. How can I forgive myself? How can I, how can I live with myself? And some of you are feeling that way. And what I want to say to you is this. It is absolutely true that you cannot forgive yourself. That is absolutely true. The Bible nowhere says that you must forgive yourself. You cannot forgive yourself. You do not have the power, the authority to forgive yourself. The guilt and the shame are there because it's, it's most oftentimes coming from a real source. It's real. But the solution is not to try to minimize that or to try to forgive yourself. You must recognize that the, the wrong that you've done is not against yourself. It's against God. And forgiveness comes ultimately from God himself. It's God who forgives. God's the one. And to not trust in God's forgiveness is to deny God. So, number three, why is God able to forgive our sins? This is really important. Why is God able to forgive our sins? Verse 9, 1 John 1 says this. If we confess our sins, John says, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, why is God able to forgive? Precisely because of those two words. He is faithful and just to forgive. This is God's nature. If God were faithful to forgive you of your sins, but he was not just, then he would be like this compassionate grandfather who's, you know, who wants to kind of spoil you and treat you, but he's powerless. He has no authority, no right. And that's not going to do you any good. On the other hand, if God were simply just, but he's not faithful to forgive your sins, then we're in deep trouble, right? I mean, that's, that's a pretty scary proposition. Then every time we come before God, we don't know if we're going to be met with his mercy or not. If God were just just but not faithful, he'd just be simply a judge who would condemn us. But praise God. The Bible says God is both faithful and just to forgive. He's both. Why? Because of the costly blood of Jesus on our behalf, right? On that cross, we see both God's faithfulness and his justice. Where the guilt that you and I incurred for our sin was judged on the cross. But because Jesus took all the judgment for us, God is faithful to be able to forgive us of our sins. So this is the solution. The solution for guilt, for shame, for all of those things is to say, God, it's true, I am guilty, but it's also true that Christ has taken away all my guilt. And I put my trust completely in him. And for some of you, that's what you need to do. You need to take that step to say, Lord Jesus, I am guilty. Forgive me, have mercy upon me. I trust in you. And as you do that, God promises he is faithful to forgive you, even right now.
Well, how does God's forgiveness change our lives? Uh, look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And this is a part that I added on. And I thought, oh, I, I've got to talk about this. But chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, John says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What I love about these two verses right here is I think these verses summarize the true experience of receiving God's forgiveness in your life and what it means to continue in Christ as a Christian. How does this forgiveness change us? Well, John says this, the reason why he wrote this whole letter or even this first chapter is to say, so that you would not sin, that you would not live in a life of disobedience. The experience of God's forgiveness, the experience of God's grace should lead you to a life of godliness, to a life in which you are learning to walk in obedience before God. This is why John wrote these words, right? So the result of this grace is not to take advantage of it. To, um, grace, like I said, is never an excuse to keep sinning. It's serious. It breaks fellowship with God. So we don't treat it lightly. But we confess, we repent, and we determine to live in new obedience before God. Yet at the same time, at the same time, John says this. He also tells us, again, reiterates what to do when you fail, right? When you fail, and we will fail. But John tells us that we when we fail, we go to Jesus, our advocate. When we sin, we have an advocate. And here, this term, uh, advocate, uh, well, it says Jesus Christ, the righteous, right? But it's this idea that he is our advocate before God, the righteous one. And this term, this idea, is that it's kind of like a, le a lawyer who represents you in a dispute before the judge. He is the legal representative to say, I represent this person. And when you sin, you go to Jesus, who is your advocate, the righteous one. And Jesus is the one who pleads your case before God. Guilty, but I'm going to pay. I've paid for it. So washed, cleansed, paid for by the blood of Jesus. And we continue to live on the basis of Christ in his work. He is a propitiation for our sins. That's to say that he satisfied all of God's just requirements and took on the judgment that we deserve. Not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And if there's anyone here, no matter what, for the sins of the whole world, Jesus' blood is enough that if you are here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord, that if you turn to him by faith and receive this forgiveness from him by faith, he will cleanse you. He will wash you. He will purify you. He will make you into a new person. And we learn as Christians to continually go back to Jesus, always confessing always confessing sin, 
always repenting, saying, Lord, uh, forgive me. I turn completely to you, and I receive your mercies in fresh new ways in my life. Many Christians struggle because they start off trusting Christ alone. But then some Christians, as they continue on, they see God transforming them and changing them. They're different people, and they become dedicated and committed to God, and they begin to slowly, subtly in their hearts trusting in their own performance rather than Christ. And they start trusting their own goodness and their dedication and their fervency and uh, whatever it is, their ministry or whatever it might be, rather than Christ alone. But John tells us that we must continually, continually come back to the basis of our relationship with God, Christ alone. Christ alone. Jerry Bridges, um, he wrote or shared a story in his book uh, called The Discipline of Grace, a book that I highly recommend, by the way. But um, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, he shares a story of a letter written by a leader of a ministry in Kenya, Africa. And the leader of this ministry, his name is Mutua Mahiani. Okay? I think that's how you pronounce it, okay? Uh, Mutua Mahiani. But he wrote in this letter, and listen to this. But this is really the key to personal revival in your life. We know, of course, how central the forgiveness of our sins is to salvation. We preach it. We believe in it. We see that first repentance and surrender to Christ as a glorious moment. We also accept that having come to the Lord, we must continue to purify our lives. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. But in talking with many believers, I get the impression that most of us consider the ongoing repentance of the saved as a not-so-glorious experience, a sort of sad necessity. Sin grieves God. We must not downplay the seriousness of it in the life of a believer. But we must come to terms with the fact that God's grace is greater than all our sins. Repentance is one of the Christian's highest privileges. A repentant Christian focuses on God's mercy and God's grace. Any moment in our lives when we bask in God's mercy and grace is our highest moment. Higher than when we feel snug in our decent performance and cannot think of anything we need to confess. Whenever we fail, and fail we will, the Spirit of God will work on us and bring us to the foot of the cross where Jesus carried our failures. That is potentially a glorious moment. For we could at that moment accept God's abundant mercy and grace and go forth with nothing to boast of except Christ himself, or we struggle with our shame focusing on that as well as our track record. We fail because we have shifted our attention from grace and mercy. But one who draws on God's mercy and grace is quick to repent, but also slow to sin. I love that. One who knows Christ alone for their salvation and their ongoing relationship with Christ 
is quick to repent. If we're not quick to repent, it's because we really don't understand the grace of God. And so we continue to live in hypocrisy. God's love and forgiveness are unconditional, as I said. But the receiving of this forgiveness from God is conditional. It's conditioned upon your willingness, my willingness to repent and confess our sins. God stands ready to forgive. He's already accomplished the work on the cross through Jesus. And we can take our sin and we can either deny it, we can blame it on someone else, we could justify it, or we could confess it. This is the truth. What will you do with that? If we don't willingly repent and confess, we cannot receive God's forgiveness. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I want to ask you, is there anything in your life right now that's been hindering your fellowship with God? Is there sin that's getting in the way of your spiritual breathing, right? You're, you're being choked spiritually because sin has been clogging up in the lungs. It's been clogging up in your heart and you can't spiritually breathe anymore. You've lost that vitality with God. You don't have that sense of closeness, that intimacy with God right now in your, your relationship with Him. Is there sin that you're not dealing with, that you're not confessing, repenting of in your life right now? Would you confess it? Would you take this invitation, would you take these promises, and would you take it to the cross? Would you learn to ask Jesus, forgive me of my debts right now? As you do so, he will. And I'm going to just invite you right now to just close your eyes. And I want to just take this moment of silence. And as God is speaking to you or as he's maybe dealing with your heart or if there's something that is, is the word of God is going out, that God is saying, this is an area that I want you to confess. I want you to repent of. Would you do that right now? Would you come before God knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive? Perhaps there's one or two, there's others of you right now that you have not invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. And God has been speaking to you and he's trying to draw your heart to him right now. And you have not confessed your sin, but would you confess your sin right now to God? Would you say, God, would you forgive me for my sins? I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. Forgive me my sins and help me to follow you. And would you invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, even today, this afternoon? 
so that God can come into your life and he can wash away the impurity, the sin, and that you can know God personally in a real relationship with him. If there's one or if there's someone out there that God is speaking to right now and you want to invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, to receive this forgiveness, I would invite you to just even raise your hand right now. And as you raise your hand, I want to pray for you as well. But if there's anyone out there that you want to invite Christ, would you just indicate that by raising your hand right now? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who took our sins upon yourself on the cross, that you are faithful, God. You are just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. God, uh, the fact that we can know you and the fact that we can walk with you is only possible because of Jesus. And we thank you, God, that we can come into this fellowship with you. Lord, would you help us uh, as we, as your children, Lord, would you continue to purify our hearts? Would you continue to purify our souls so that, Lord, we would continue to walk with you in deeper ways? Lord, that we would continue to know you, uh, that our lives might glorify you. Lord, that our lives might proclaim your goodness. Would you do that for us, Lord, as a church and individually, Lord? We thank you, Lord, for your great love and mercy. We thank you for that cross, and we thank you for the, the resurrection of Jesus that makes it all happen and possible. When we give him the glory and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.